Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime Features. I'm Adam Shand. This podcast was originally published as part of New South Wales Police State Crime Command. In episode one, police in 2020 established that a jawbone found on a beach in northern New South Wales nine years earlier belonged to a missing mariner named Bill Moran, lost in 1979. As Detective Senior Constable Kelly Vaness prepared a report for the coroner, an amazing story emerged from the files, the tragedy of the nocturne. Conditions were near perfect that morning, September 23rd, 1979. A light nor'easter was blowing and skies were clear as the nocturne left Moreton Bay at 6.30am, headed south to Nelson Bay in New South Wales, a journey of 700 nautical miles. Once the vessel was clear of the heads, the nocturne's new owner had taken the helm. Billy Moran was literally cruising towards his future. His family had bought a boat business and the nocturne was part of the dream. Billy was delivering the boat to Nelson Bay. He and his wife Pip were going to run a charter business, taking tourists around the bay. The nocturne was perfect for that. It was a 45-foot timber-plank luxury cruiser powered by two six-cylinder Mercedes engines. It had a sleek white hull, teak decks and a spacious green cabin and flybridge. This was a new chapter in the Moran family history and Bill was ready for it. At 24, he was superbly fit, a champion swimmer and rugby league footballer. His real passion was long-distance endurance horse racing that required the utmost physical and mental capacity. Now he was taking that to sea with him and Pip, his wife, was right up for the challenge of this new life. They felt lucky and blessed to be on this voyage together. Pip's sister Maria had come with her husband Ray. He was also a Moran, but no relation to Bill's family. Ray was a mechanic and handy with just about everything, which would later prove to be vitally important. Bill needed help getting the boat down the coast. This was actually his first time in the open ocean. He was studying for his coxswain's licence and could handle small boats. For now, Fred Markwell was the master of the nocturne. Bill's father hired Markwell to bring the boat to Nelson Bay and Markwell planned to teach Bill the ropes on the way down. At 67, Markwell was a highly experienced sailor with a big reputation. He was a former Commodore of the Queensland Cruising Yacht Club and a multiple winner of the Brisbane to Gladstone Ocean Race. So he understood the risks at sea better than most. The nocturne might have set off a day earlier but for Markwell's healthy respect for the sea. On the Saturday, after extensive safety checks, Markwell felt the steering was loose and one engine was overheating. So, with Bill and Ray's help, the skipper spent all morning making adjustments. Then they tested the boat around the bay and briefly outside the heads until Fred was satisfied. Even then, he waited. There was a surf running at the heads in the afternoon, not ideal for this harbour cruiser, and they were in no rush. It was grand final day in the Sydney Rugby League. St George was playing Canterbury. So they spent the afternoon on Moreton Bay listening to the game on the Nocturne's radio. The reception was dropping out at first, 
So Bill pulled the unit out of the wall and tested all the valves and got it working. Bill was the kind of Aussie guy who could just fix stuff. He'd have a go at anything. Ray was the same. This was his first time at sea also, and he wouldn't have missed it. They enjoyed a meal at anchor and had a few beers under the stars. They talked excitedly about the voyage and the life ahead. They felt like millionaires as they bobbed gently on the tide in this handsome vessel. They turned in early. Sunday was going to be a long day. To modify the steering, Fred had to disconnect the autopilot, which meant that someone had to be at the helm steering at all times. But the three men planned to work in shifts through the night. It would be good experience for Bill. It was going to be a smooth ride, with the wind at their backs. In these pleasant conditions, Fred told them, they'd be in Coffs Harbour for a late breakfast on Monday morning. After a few hours ashore in Coffs, they'd set off again and arrive at their destination by late afternoon the following day. Fred Markwell hadn't shared this information with port authorities. He wasn't required to, and he had no reason to. There was nothing on his weather charts to indicate what was coming up the coast towards him. It was a sunny, beautiful day. Ray Moran survived the nocturne tragedy, and it remains vivid in his memory. I can remember cruising down the coast and getting to near Byron Bay, down that way, and I can remember seeing the uh, clouds. And I said to him then, I said, oh, it looks like a storm. Ray voiced his concerns to Fred Markwell, who dismissed them. There was some weather ahead, but not a southerly buster, at least not according to his barometer. He knew these storms that could sweep up the east coast from the south with devastating force. If one was coming, the barometer should have been rising fast. It wasn't. As night fell, the warm nor'easter had disappeared. After a lull, the wind turned around to the south and it came with a chill. Fred could see no lightning ahead, so they pressed on. He didn't know a high-pressure system over Tasmania was pushing a cold front up the south coast of New South Wales towards them. It hit Sydney mid-afternoon, with winds up to 90 kilometres an hour. 18-footers racing on Sydney Harbour were scattered like paper hats in the sudden gale. Boats were pulled from their moorings, and small craft racing for cover capsized in the choppy seas. The Wales helicopter rescued three people in treacherous seas this afternoon when their yacht overturned off Avalon Beach and could not be righted because of huge waves breaking over the mast. A helicopter crewman was lowered to the water where he slashed the sails and helped a man and two boys to right the craft and to reach safety. The front was expected to pass as quickly as it came, sliding off into the Tasman Sea within 12 hours on Monday, but not before intercepting the nocturne as it headed south. If Markwell had checked the New South Wales forecast for that evening, he might have made for port. The Bureau of Meteorology Sydney issued the following forecast at 6pm on 23rd of September. Renewal of strong wind warnings 20 to 30 kilometres. South to southeast, all New South Wales coastal waters. Moderating south of the Hunter overnight. Seas moderate to rough with moderate swell. However, what was coming their way was actually much worse than the forecast. At 9pm, after the nocturne had passed the Tweed River into New South Wales waters, conditions deteriorated quickly. Strange wind gusts came at 5 to 10 minute intervals, increasing each time in intensity, from 20 knots to 40 and finally to 60. The unflappable Markwell had to admit they were heading into the teeth of a storm. 
The nocturne was about eight miles offshore. Markwell could see the lights of Evanshead Township on his starboard side. But he knew the nocturne wouldn't make it through the coastal breakers in conditions like this. So he tried coming about and heading back north for safety. But the nocturne was not made to run before 60 knot winds. The vessel nearly broached sideways and would have quickly broken up had Markwell persisted. In his mind, he had no choice but to head further east, out into deeper waters where they could ride out the storm. Well, obviously the waves started, the sea started getting rough and Bill and Pip and Maria got very seasick and they all went down to the bedrooms and laid down and I was sitting up in the, I suppose you call it a lounge room. Ray was in the saloon which had large square plate glass windows on three sides set into plywood and aluminium frames. At 10.30pm, Maria came up from below to join Ray. He was stretched out reading a book by Stephen King. And I was sort of lying on the lounge. Then uh, I heard one, I thought it was plane or something. What's that noise? And it was a big road wave and it just smashed the windows out of the room I was sitting in. I thought I'd gone out the other side of the boat, to tell you the truth, that much water came through. That's when we're in trouble. Soon after, both engines cut out and the nocturne was floating helpless in the storm. Its interior was exposed to the elements. Ray went down below in waist-deep water and managed to get one engine working. And that was 10.30pm. One engine's gone, part of the superstructure, and the steering's damaged. That's correct. And the radio that was on the wall had been ripped out of the wall. The two-way radio was in pieces. Its wiring was completely detached from the unit. At Bill's urging, Ray set to work. He got the radio working somehow, but the speaker had been destroyed. Even if they could send messages, they couldn't be sure anyone could hear. So I wired it as best I could, but we never ever got any callback. We never knew whether anyone got received our mayday or not. After the first wave, Markwell ordered the crew to send pan calls, alerting shipping of their position. It's one step below a mayday call, and it's not clear if anyone heard them. As the storm intensified, Markwell became distant from the others. He stayed up on the top deck at the helm, wrestling to keep the vessel from being swamped by waves. He ignored calls from Ray and Bill that he'd turn into Evan's head or just turn back. It was too late for that. Ray could see fear in Fred's eyes. He didn't know what to do next. I think that's what happened to him. I think he was just... He couldn't react. He was just sort of frozen in the moment. He just didn't know whether to go left or right or he lost a little bit of uh, direction. Markwell was taking the nocturne even further from shore, 15 miles off Evans' head. As it turned out, they weren't safe there either. And then at midnight, another huge wave hits. Yeah. What did that one do? Basically flooded the boat and it's really starting to take in water now. The second wave took out the radio aerial on the top of the boat. Markwell sent Ray and Bill out into the howling wind to secure it with a length of rope. Incredibly scary. I thought for sure I'd go over, but Bill hung onto my legs and I managed to tie it down and uh, uh, that's the scariest thing I've ever done. This moment would prove pivotal to the outcome of this story. Soon after the second wave, the coupling that connected the last remaining engine to the drive shaft broke and Markwell could no longer drive the boat. They were now drifting in the heaving seas. 
At least the engine could drive a bilge pump that would slow the ingress of water to the vessel. Fred Markwell had more or less given up. Ray Moran remembers the skipper was crouched in the corner, asleep or uncommunicative. He was out of answers and at the mercy of the elements and his own missteps. Pip and Maria stayed at the radio for hours, taking turns to make mayday calls. Maria and Pip continued to send mayday calls until after daylight. Looking back, the position they gave on Markwell's instructions was probably inaccurate. The Nocturne's position was actually 15 miles off Evans' head, not 10. Bill fired off distress flares through the night to no avail. As their light faded and died on the wind, they realised they were alone on the sea and nobody knew they were there. They huddled together and tried to sleep while taking turns to send mayday calls. When the final engine gave out, the bilge pump would stop and the nocturne would disappear into the deep. And then their survival in these towering seas would rest on a 10-foot aluminium dinghy. This is Bill Moran's younger brother, Martin, and his beautiful 1965 Ford Mustang. Yeah, I've done 12,900 miles. Martin was 18 years old when Bill went missing. He's just turned 60. Was Bill into his cars as well? Oh, yeah. What did he have back in the day? <laughs> he had a uh, GTR Tirana, purple and black, 73 LJ. It was around when... Uh, Brocky was winning the Baffist. The Moran boys were into cars and horses, and Martin has kept up the tradition. Well, years ago, we, me and Dad were in race horses when he was alive, but um, I do a lot of endurance racing and breed my own horses and, yeah. And you still ride today? I don't like the skite, but I've had a had two wins in a second this year, and I was on. Uh, I was coming first in New South Wales up until a couple of weeks ago because I didn't go to the state championships. And your brother Bill was also into that. He was into that oh, fifty odd years ago. Yeah. Yeah. What sort of bloke was he? Probably fifty-four. He was a great bloke. Yeah. Still tough, isn't it? <laughs> no, he's tough as nails. The walls of Marty's bar at home are lined with trophies for rugby league and silver belt buckles won in endurance riding events. Bill only had time to win a few and Marty's kept them for him all these years. No, but Bill was a champion swimmer and champion footballer and and a good horseman. um, Oh, look, I remember Nundle paid him to go out there many years ago and he he had six games and broke his leg. And he won best and fairest in the group. So, you know, that tells you. You played footy together? Yeah. What position did you play? Well, when we went in the Nelson Bay, they threw us both in the second row. <laughs> Brothers in arms. I suppose he'd be more, more, more of a mate. A brother and a mate. There's a hint of regret in Marty's voice, like things might have been different had he been on that boat with his brother. Yeah, well, I basically wanted to go on it, but 
I declined. Why is that? Probably fear more than anything. Did, did anyone think, oh, this might be a bit dangerous? Was there any discussion like that at the time? No, well, there wasn't any problem really because uh, because of the big name Skipper and everyone seemed happy. But I, I was just that way. I wasn't happy to go go on it. Marty's got a portrait of Bill and Pip taken at their wedding in 1978. Bill's arms are wrapped around her protectively. She's about to launch the bouquet. She's making a joke. And Bill is just beaming at his pretty wife. He's tanned and solid with a shock of wavy hair. Marty looks like an older version of Bill, tough and dependable, the very image of resilience. If anyone could make it home from the nocturne, it would have been Bill Moran, with or without a boat. Oh, God, they, I can remember him telling me that they used to swim up to 10 miles a day. Uh, he was a sprinter and a long distance. He would have had a crack, right? He would have had a red-hot crack, so, I reckon. Oh, you're not wrong. The Nocturne's last engine shut off about an hour after sunrise on Monday, September 24th. With the pump also gone, the vessel was filling up quickly. Bill rallied the others and they made a bucket brigade to bail water from the vessel, but that was short-lived. It was time to abandon ship. Markwell didn't give the order. He'd surrendered his leadership. Ray and Bill had taken over. They emptied water containers and strung them together for flotation. They gathered flares and warm clothing and readied the 10-foot aluminium dinghy for launch. As the boys worked, Maria wrote a message on the back of a sea chart. 23rd September 1979. Lost at sea. Boat sinking. Help, help. 15 miles east of Evans Head. The position she gave was significant. In their Mayday calls, Maria and Pip had consistently said the nocturne was 10 miles east of Evans Head. The skipper Markwell hadn't told them he'd taken them another five miles east at midnight. They'd been giving the wrong location, and now the girls knew it. The radio had gone down at about 7am, so the only way to correct matters now was a message in a bottle. Maria sealed the bottle and tossed it over the side, ten minutes before they went down. Bill was the last one off the nocturne. He held the dinghy as the others clambered aboard. Then he jumped in and cut the rope that tethered them to the nocturne and pushed away from the stricken cabin cruiser, which was listing at a 60-degree angle, its top deck awash and sinking fast. The five castaways were crammed into the dinghy, which was hopelessly overcrowded and precarious. They all knew this wasn't going to last long, and within 10 seconds, the top of a huge swell broke on them and overturned the craft. They were all pitched into the freezing ocean. The Seiko watch Ray Moran was wearing wasn't waterproof. It stopped at a quarter past nine. Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolich. The associate producer, Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. Listener.